Hi, my name is Monty Rowland, and I'd like to spend a few minutes today talking about how to increase your food security. So, I've spent a lot of time talking about how to preserve food, different methods, pros and cons. What I'd like to do is to is to look at it more holistically, not just how to preserve food, but also where to source food, what to do with it. So there's several things you can do. One thing is to look at ways to source your food locally. Now, so let me back up. Let's think about what is your kind of your um, food footprint. So currently, and one way to do that is to map out where you get your food from. Another thing to do is to do a study and figure out what you actually eat. So in this case, let's say that you took and made a list of everything you consumed over a period of one, two, three, or four weeks. The longer the period, the more accurate the list will be. So the reason why you do this is that you may think that you only buy this, this, and this, but you don't think about other items. So let's say that what one way to go about this is to start making a list every time you consume a food or a food-related item. So food item would be, okay, I ate two eight-ounce steaks. Uh, it came from Food Lion. Got it. Put that on the list. I consumed uh, eight ounces of mixed vegetables from Food Lion. Okay, and maybe too while you're doing it, you know, say what, what was the state? What state did that come in? Was it frozen? Was it fresh? Was it canned? And then also write down other items you use. So, for example, let's say you made oatmeal. Well, I used two things of packaged oatmeal. There are four ounces each from Foodline. And then maybe, too, the other thing to consider is these non-food items. So did you use paper plates? Did you use baking soda in your cooking? Or did you use flour? I shouldn't say non-food items. Items that aren't specifically food but are food-related. You know, Did you use mustard or mayonnaise? Even if it's a spoonful, if you don't have a spoonful, then that's a problem. So it's not really a minimum amount. You know, it may be that I used uh, one pinch of cayenne pepper or one teaspoon of oil. So if you make a list of what you're using to cook with, anything you had to buy or anything you pulled out of the pantry to cook with, so as far as supplies, and then make that list, and then you can even put that on a spreadsheet, you know, how much you had, where you had it. And I think at this point, the amount isn't all that critical, but what you used, generally how much, just so you know, okay, I had a pound of it versus an ounce versus a, a pinch of spices and where it came from. And then that'll give you a better idea of what you're actually consuming in a month. 
So then the next step is, let's say that you look at this and every single thing you consume came from the grocery store, right? That means that if the grocery store, for some reason, didn't have items you're looking for, where would they come from? And if everything you buy comes from one grocery store, what happens if there's some sort of economic direct disruption or supply chain disruption? So then the, the next step is to, is to make a list of sources near you, alternative sources. So I'm not saying go to another food line. I'm saying, is there a farmer near you that sells beef? Is there a farmer near you that raises chickens? Uh, is there a neighbor or are there 10 neighbors that sell um, you know, chickens or eggs? And start mapping out where can I get alternate sources of these foods? So now all of a sudden you're starting to say, well, if I can't get squash, where can I get squash? Well, in the summer in the south, that's extremely easy. But thinking about this ahead of time makes you aware of where your vulnerabilities are and where your food security lies or doesn't lie. So for example, if you live in a city and you have, there are no farmers within, a, I don't know, 50 miles, then that should be, in my mind, concern because there's a single point of failure for you. And, and maybe if you don't have any agricultural or more agricultural options, maybe then the choice is, okay, what other grocery stores can I buy from or are there other outlets I can buy from maybe there's um, a halal store maybe there's um, a tienda you know is there an is there an eth is a is there a traditionally ethnic source like of food where I can purchase that I'm not tied to a major grocery store chain that would be another way to have a better control over that footprint. So now you've you followed this. Like I said, there's going to be a point where you've gotten 90% of your results with 80% of your effort. You just have to figure out when that is, depending on how repeatable your food, um, your diet is. So if you eat the same thing every week, then maybe it just takes a week. So now you've tracked what you're eating and the food related items to make that work like like I said from paper plates to mayonnaise to spices and then start mapping out what are alternatives and in a lot of cases if you live in the suburbs or countryside then you may have a lot of alternatives fairly close by so that gives you an idea of options. Now, one of the great ways to meet new alternatives is to go to the farmer's market, the local farmer's market. And instead of just buying stuff from the local farmer's market, buy and develop relationships. So for example, if a farmer at a local farmer's market recognizes you because you have bought stuff from them for the past six months every other week then they're more likely 
to prioritize selling to you in difficult conditions. But if they don't know you, it's difficult conditions and everyone is bugging them to buy food, they're going to sell to the people they know first for a lot of reasons. And so having that relationship with those farmers is important. Like I said, the best way is the farmer's market. And you may think, well, I'm spending, I can buy eggs at the farmer's market for three, four bucks, five bucks a dozen, or I can get them a dollar fifty at Food Lion. Well, the problem is that if your only source of eggs is Food Lion, and all of a sudden they aren't available at Food Lion, you're out of eggs. Is that important in your diet? Well, and it may be worth it to pay a little more for some items that are key items so that you'll have a more a broader supply a more diverse supply rather than one store providing it all so by developing those relationships and getting on a first name basis now all of a sudden you have a lot more food security that may be more expensive but if you don't have it then that money was that money will have been well spent because if you couldn't get it at the grocery store. And then the other thing you may want to do is at some point, you know, maybe go to the farm, visit that farmer's farm if they allow that and buy directly from them at the farm. I think that's ideal because now all of a sudden you've shortened that path to you getting food even, even shorter. And you may be able to get a discount too. Because if you have a regular, if you're a regular customer and that farmer has, let's say, I don't know, a bushel full of squash that he picked on Monday and the farmer's market's on Saturday, you might be able to pick a bushel full of squash up at a reduced rate because there may not be an outlet for it for that farmer and that he doesn't want that to go bad. So now all of a sudden you've got an opportunity to pick up food at a lower cost and then go preserve it. And if things get difficult, you've, got, you've been face-to-face with this farmer at, at his farm. And that farmer is much more likely to try and meet your food needs because they know you. So you've, you've developed that relationship to help support your need for food. And then other options, there's a thing that a lot of people don't know about called a CSA, which is community-supported agriculture. So what a CSA does is to provide a regular supply of food items to people who have that subscription. So the best way to look at a CSA is to consider it a food subscription. So the way CSAs work is that the farmer, once a week, every two weeks, once a month, provides a box to customers. And this box has whatever's in season at the moment. So, for example, you may get a box this time of year that has a lot of greens in it. And this is being November. It may have a lot of greens, a lot of radishes, uh, maybe some remnant potatoes that has things. So the only things you're going to get a CSA bo- in a CSA box are things that are currently gr- in uh, being harvested 
So you're not in the South, you're not gonna get a CSA box full of squash in December, unless that farmer happens to grow them in a greenhouse. And that could be with some CSAs. Instead, you're gonna get winter crops. So a couple of things. One thing is that your diet needs to change with what's seasonal. And I think that's a good idea to do that anyway, because if times do get tough, you're not going to get ban- you're not going to get bananas that came 3,000 miles. It's not going to ha- it's probably not going to happen if that supply chain is severely disrupted. Those bananas aren't going to make it that three or six thousand miles. Instead, you're going to have to eat what's available locally. So then, kind of the we've sought out subscription services, CSA type services, and and those you pay a fee every week or every month. You get those boxes. A lot of times you'll have to go pick it up, or you'll a lot of them you pick it up from a central location. So the farmer doesn't have to go to 100 places to deliver. They just go, let's say, to the farmer's market, and you pick it up on Saturday morning from the farmer. So that CSA box is excellent. There's other types of subscriptions, but generally they're they're called CSAs. There's also meat CSAs. Not only not only plant but meat and so that's a great way to do that now kind of in your as you're learning about this now you can start plugging this in and saying hey I can get the following products in what season from what farmer or maybe three or four different farms so now all of a sudden on this spreadsheet you created you can start putting names and phone numbers saying okay this farm grows this this and this well you put that farm down on your sheet and you can see where this is going because now you're starting to become aware of the distance your food comes because you got to remember too that a lot of our food travels major distances before we get it a big chunk of the food in the grocery store is grown in California Okay, now you may have forgotten already, or maybe you didn't, but California's having massive problems with water. So, for example, almond trees take a lot of water. A lot of almonds come from California. A lot of almond farms have reduced or greatly diminished water supplies. There are farmers that are cutting down, have been cutting down almond trees this year because they can't water them, and it's better to cut them down and replant them later than it is for the whole orchard to get diseased when they don't don't have enough water they're going to be susceptible to disease you could lose the whole orchard so instead they'll cut down part of the orchard the problem is that now it may be five or ten years before that farmer can provide the same amount of almonds so this is happening all through california through this drought well a lot of vegetables that are in the grocery store come from california and so there's a, a weakness there. Well, instead, if you can have a relationship with multiple one or multiple farmers nearby, now all of a sudden you've got multiple outlets to buy your food from. But here's the thing. If no one supports those farmers, they're not going to farm. If more people support the farmers, they're more likely to farm. And can farmers compete with giant corporate farms 
a lot of cases, no, small farms can't. So for example, if you raise chickens and feed them commercial food, it's over $3 a dozen current price of commercial food for Laena to, to provide eggs from your home flock. I can raise them at home for a little over for around three dollars a dozen, just considering chicken, just chickens here. Or I can go to the grocery store and buy them for a dollar fifty each. And it's the same type thing. We're gonna have to start voting with our pocketbook because being able to source those eggs locally is powerful, even though it costs more. But it's powerful because now you can have you can be more resilient if there's supply chain issues. So yes, you're gonna have to spend more in some cases. In some cases, maybe not. But in general, yes, it's gonna be a little more expensive. But there again, you know, what price has that security? And if you go a CSA route or if you look for opportunities when farms are just inundated with crops that more than they have an outlet to sell you may be able to pick up some of those crops in the mid-season or harvesting season for that crop and preserve it so there may be some opportunities to bring that cost down so now what we've done is we've mapped out where our food comes from sought alternatives for that now some of these things may cost you some capital expense by capital expense things you spend once or once every few years and then that's a, a piece of something that's needed to make some of this other happen so for example currently in North Carolina beef is about $6.50 a pound if you buy a whole cow from a local farmer. And it now there's also some depends here. If you want a cow that was 100% grass-fed, had no stress in its life, the owner went out and sung to it at night, okay, it's going to be more. I mean, you can choose these very high-end, extremely tender, extremely high-quality uh, pampered cows, and yes, it's more. But if you just buy a, I'm going to say, a standard small farm cow, you can get it right now for about $6.50 a pound. That's chopped up, and the farmer brings it to you. You go pick it up, and you put it in your freezer. And you're like, I can't fit a cow in my freezer. Well, there's some options here. One option is that you buy a bigger freezer. If you have a 19 cubic foot freezer, and you have a cow that dresses out at let's say 500 pounds. Dresses out means once the carcass is removed, the bones are removed, the, uh, all the stuff you don't eat is removed. The, the skeleton, the head, the hooves. What's the edible part that's left is, is the dressed out, is the dressed weight. Now, I'm not a cattle farmer, so I may drop the ball on some terms here. 
But what happens generally is that farmer, there's a couple different paths here. One common path is you have a farmer that raises the cows from start to finish, i.e. from a calf to the time they uh, harvest it. Another common scenario is you have a farmer that buys a cow. This is usually smaller farms. They'll buy a cow and the last six months they'll have the cow on their farm and then they'll feed it the diet to get the result they want. You can change the tenderness and the taste of your beef based upon what you feed it, how much, how much the cow moves. There's, there's a lot of variables there. But so that, so sometimes the cow will stay in the same farm its whole life. Other times it may be on two different farms or more possibly. But then that farmer on either case will take that, that uh, cow and will transfer that to a processor. And there's some different stages here when the cow is slaughtered versus when it's processed. And, and slaughter means when they, the cow stop, they, they harvest the cow, it stops breathing. And then it goes and is processed. So generally if you buy a cow from a USDA processed facility, when it comes to you, you're not going to get a cow you have to go in the backyard and cut up. You're going to generally get beef that is wrapped. Uh, the old school way is freezer paper. The, what you see now most of the time is they're vacuum packed and they're in plastic. So it actually looks, it's actually thicker plastic than what you would get at Food Lion. And it's vacuum packed, it's labeled, it has the name of the farm, the USDA processor, it's USDA inspected. So there's no safety issue here. You're no safer buying it from Food Lion than you are from the small farmer. There's not a safety issue here. So let's say the average cow dresses out about 500 pounds. There are breeds that are bigger, there's breeds that are smaller. You have to talk to the farmer. So then you take that, you put it in your freezer. A 19 cubic foot freezer can easily hold 500 pounds of meat. It'll be pretty full, but it can do that. So you can do the math. A smaller freezer you know, is just proportional to the amount of meat you've got. A lot of times, if you go to buy a whole cow, that's easy. If you want to buy, a lot of times, farmers will also support you buying a half cow or a quarter cow. And then some farms will let you buy it a la carte. You go on their website, you pick what you want, and it gets shipped to you. That's more expensive. But so if you buy, let's say you buy a whole cow and you get someone else in your family to go in half with you. Now instead of having 300 pounds or 500 pounds of meat, you got 250 pounds of meat. Or maybe you buy a quarter cow and get 125 pounds of meat. But now that is in your freezer. And there is some risk there because if the power goes out for an extended period of time, you could lose that. There's things you can do to mitigate that risk. One is get a generator, run it just long enough to keep the freezer cold until the power is restored. You could go have a solar set up. You could figure out where your risk tolerance is. But if you have power and the supply chain doesn't work, then having that beef in your freezer is a really good thing. 
do the same thing with um, pork. You can buy a half a cow, I mean, excuse me, a half a pig, quarter pig, whole pig. Uh, pigs generally are smaller than cows, so you've got less at once. And so these are great ways to expand that footprint so you're not as tied to one place. You may even find the quality of your meat goes up. So now you've started buying food from more and more local sources. I'm going to challenge you somewhere in the process here to have a meal that was all local. And maybe you've put in a garden. Maybe you've got some chickens in the backyard. But I'll challenge you to have a meal or two where everything was grown locally. That's harder than you think. You'll be surprised at how difficult that is. But I think that highlights the challenge of what you're trying to do. And it also highlights how dangerously exposed you and your family are to just a few sources of food. But I will say that it's very nice when you have a meal that is locally sourced. Now, of course, having a garden is a really great way to do that, to have add to what's locally sourced. And, you know, maybe too in your garden, don't try to do everything. You know, do things, did you find a superpower? Do you grow the greatest squash in the world? Well, maybe you grow the greatest squash in the world, find a neighbor who grows the greatest zucchini in the world, and you start swapping. Start having these transactions with local farmers, with neighbors. Maybe you have a, maybe you have a neighbor that grows great chickens or great ducks, you know, and maybe you buy that. The other thing to keep in mind is that you can grow your own chickens. You can grow your own ducks. And you say, yeah, but I don't know how to process them. I don't know how to clean them. So first thing is that cleaning a chicken is not super difficult. It takes time at first because you've got to learn how to do it. The more you do, the easier it gets. If you don't want to clean your own birds, there are, low, there are places, probably very close to you, where people do that for a living. So where we are, it's four bucks for you to bring someone a living, breathing chicken and them to give you back a chicken in a bag. You, it's maybe a slight upcharge if you want them to uh, cut the chicken up or you can get it whole. If you get it whole, you have more options because then you can cook it whole or you can cut it up before you cook it. And cutting up a chicken after it's been processed, there's just not much to it probably your mom or your grandma could probably cut up a chicken in no time didn't think anything of it so having to buy your chicken all cut up really isn't a big requirement because that's something you can learn to do and do it easily that's really not difficult processing your own chickens isn't difficult but maybe it's better to spend the four bucks and let someone else do it for you and then all you can constantly all you have to concentrate on is raising your chickens and then with chickens, you can concentrate on chickens for meat or chickens for eggs. Meat chickens are typically different varieties than egg chickens. Egg chickens 
are, have been bred over the years to lay a lot of eggs, not get big. Meat chickens are chickens that have been bred over the years to get big, so they have a lot of meat. Meat chickens aren't good egg layers, and egg layers generally aren't good meat chickens. There are some dual purpose birds that do both. Uh, for example, an Orphington uh, or a, a Barred Rock that you can eat, they don't, but they don't get as big as, say, a brawler. So one thing you gotta remember is that these chick, well, I'll, we'll come to that another time, but, but so just know that chickens are bred for meat or eggs or some that are a compromise that don't do either thing great but you can you can get the eggs for some number of time and then when it's time for that chicken to um, has passed its laying period then they're big enough that you can process them so that's an advantage and, and I've talked about this in other places so I don't belabor it but you can also make your own chicken food the way you do that is you make sure the chickens have the proper nutrients, which in a macro standpoint isn't very difficult. I've got a spreadsheet on the money.com website. And you can find wheat at local farmers. You can find corn at local farmers. find peanuts um, or roast soybeans. You can find oats. And then you can make your own chicken food. And the nice thing about that is you buy that once a year and then you're set for a year, roughly. Depends on how warm a climate you're in. Storing whole grains in warm climates can be, takes a little bit of work. But either way, you can roll your own chicken food. Now you have eggs or you have meat, depending on what, or both, depending on what you're growing them for. And you can feed those chickens for, an e for a year, get eggs for that year because you've put that food away. And it's about half of what it costs to buy the food. And then you just mix it every day. It's, it's pretty simple to make your own chicken food. It really, really is. And so these are ways that you can increase your food supply footprint. And I'll encourage you too that having these transactions that you do with local farmers, that helps you because now all of a sudden you've developed a relationship and you can and that's that's a win that really is a win so i hope these tips help i hope that um this will help you make some uh good decisions about how to increase your food supply safety